Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. Uh, We continue talking about a topic that is huge for those of us over 60, and especially the more we get beyond the age of 60. And that's where do we want to live? You know, what among the range of options should we choose? So we've come to this topic, Jill, I don't know, a number of shows, and it seems to be this and money. Yeah. It's not as if they're unrelated, but, uh, but those topics, those two topics are really far and away, I think, the most popular, more than health itself. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we want to continue to bring you the best information we can to help you make decisions, to help you make selections among your options. You have more options today than you had 10 years ago, and I think there will be even more in another 10 years. So we look for experts that can kind of give you the inside scoop, the things you're not going to find out about when you start looking for places to live for either yourselves or your parent, meaning uh, whether it's independent living, assisted living, or, or skilled care, which is a ner- quote-unquote nursing home. So we look for people who can kind of give you a behind-the-scenes insight, people who are experts in the industry that can can help you know what to look for. And it's hard because if you just go from one place to another and listen to their sales or marketing people, you know, you can't count on the sort of objective advice that you often need. Uh, but also we have somebody today who, in addition, can talk about how do you deal with those dynamics if, if you are the child of such a person and you're trying to, to you know, persuade them to move to a different place out of their home, and, and maybe they're reluctant to do that. So, so we, we want to have an expert on to address these and, and related issues, and it turns out that we found somebody who has quite a reputation uh, in the St. Louis metro area primarily, but I'm sure beyond. And so we've managed to have her here in the studio with us today. And Jill, as always, can be counted on to do a proper introduction. I hope so anyway. Cheryl Wilson, she's an author, speaker, and long-term care expert with advocacy for seniors. Cheryl, we're so happy you could come on board and, you know, give us an inside look of, you know, what we need to know, you know, with this final act in our lives. Um, Now, your passion for long-term care began long ago, when you were in college, actually. And I'm really fascinated by that story. Yeah, so when I was in college, I worked in a long-term care community, and I was a CNA, and later on I became a certified medical technician. And one of the things that really broke my heart in long-term care, even back then, which was way back then, was that oftentimes, you know, if it was a nice day out or something, a lot of my coworkers would call in sick. And I would have to pick up the load maybe two or three times more than I normally did. And what would just continually break my heart is I could meet 
the physical needs of the residents that I had. But so often what those residents really needed was someone to sit down and hold their hand and talk to them. Companionship. Companionship. The physical is so small compared to the emotional, spiritual, and psychological, social, psychological needs of the resident. I could not meet that when I was having two to three times the workload. So finally, I decided I need to leave here because— I can't do this to myself. It was too heartbreaking. How long ago was that? That was, gosh, I graduated from college in 82. So this was in the early 80s, mid-80s that I was working in the long-term care communities. So Boy, when they've I, come a long way, yeah, have they not? they have. So what happened when I left there, I made a promise to myself because I knew that was my passion, mm-hmm. that I would come back at some point when I could make a difference. And it wasn't until 96 that I had the opportunity to go on board with the ombudsman program. And as soon as someone told me about that program, I knew that's what I needed to be. So let's talk about what is the long-term care ombudsman program? Well, in the St. Louis area, the ombudsman program is now called VOICE, okay? It's called VOICE. V-O-Y-C-E, all capital letters. And what the ombudsman portion, the ombudsman are the federally mandated advocates for people in long-term care facilities. So if a resident or a family member has a concern about the care their loved one is getting, they can call the the voice office and speak to an ombudsman. And the ombudsman will go out and speak with the resident first, because that's our primary concern. And then with the resident's permission, we can then uh, work with the facility to get resolution to their concern. We The ombudsman always seeks satisfaction for the resident, because the end of the day, the staff go home, the advocates go home, the families go home, but this is their home. And in your home, you should be able to choose what you want, what's important to you. And so this is um, this is a department that is mandated through uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicare. It's a part of the Older Americans Act. Okay. And it is a federal mandate, so all states in the United States have to have an ombudsman program and it's called long-term care because there's other ombudsman programs. Long-term care ombudsmen are the advocates for people in licensed nursing homes. So not independent because they're not licensed. What about assisted living? Assisted living, residential care, and skilled nursing. So it's it. it's an agency that holds, say, nursing homes accountable? Yes, yes. Like they're policing? Yes. Okay. And in, in Missouri, the state ombudsman is actually out of work, out of the Department uh, of Health and Senior Services. So, but the regional offices are throughout the state, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah, and so people understand these categories because you run into them a lot in every state and the names may vary a little bit but there are some common denominators pretty much you'll always hear about independent living as a category often that's the least regulated it's not regulated okay in this state and maybe in in, this state it's not okay yes in missouri so and i would say largely in, in maybe in all states but i don't Take that for granted. So there's independent living, which provides the least care. So it kind of makes sense that it's not heavily regulated. Then there's assisted living, where virtually every state, uh, they set up certain criteria that you have to meet, you know, the conditions, the number of professionals on staff. And as you might imagine, assisted living is lower than the third category and the highest category, which is skilled care. And that's what we think of when we think of nursing homes. Mm -hmm. So 
when we talk about these today, independent living, assisted living, skilled care. So anytime you're considering moving into a place, be sure you understand whether they offer all three levels of those care, or maybe they just offer one and maybe one is all you want. Before we talk about the decision about a nursing home, can you talk a little bit about what are some of the things that people should consider when they're thinking about uh, kind of taking the initiative, moving out of their their single-family home, likely, of many years, and now they're going to move in to, let's say, an assisted living facility versus independent. What are some of the things that that you would suggest they ask? What are some of the concerns that you would have in your mind if you were advising your loved one regarding that? Well, first of all, when someone moves from their home to a a long-term care community, they've got to be on board to do it. It's nothing that you're going to want to force them to do because you want them to be successful. But when the decision's made yet that, yeah, let's start looking at, at a facility and see what I, what we think, there's a lot of things you can do to help you make a good decision on if that particular community is going to meet the needs of your loved one. Because all people are unique. And what one facility offers may not meet the need of your loved one where another facility will. Right, it may not be a good fit. Let's take that for granted. So what are some of the things they should look for? Well, what you want to do, the first thing I tell people is kind of look at geographically where you want to be. Okay, and when when you're considering that, you know, you need to consider where do my children live? I want to be someplace where the people who mean the most to me could visit easily. So, Um, among that geographic area, what are the facilities, what are my options? So then you're going to want to set up a tour with the the facility. So you're going to want to call the person in sales. Some will call them sales. Some will call them admissions coordinators. You're going to want to set up a meeting with that person. And you're going to want to go in and you're going to want to sit down. And you want to take your loved one if they're able to do it uh, so that they're part of the process. And you're going to want to sit down and you're going to say, you know, we're looking possibly to move into a an assisted living, sell me on what does your community have to offer. Let them sell you on what they have to offer. But there's also certain things that you're going to want to know. You're going to want to know as far as the charges, you know, what is covered over room and board? What are all the additional charges? A lot of assisted living have what they call community fee, and it can be up to $5,000 at the time you go in. So that's a one-time? It's a one-time fee. Uh, you know, to help with activities and things like that. But you want to know what that is. You want to know all the charges up front. So you want to be sure and know that. You you want to know as far as the staffing, what what is the staffing? The assisted living staffing, like you said, is lower than the staffing for a skilled facility. And a skilled facility really doesn't have ratios anymore. The, the law for the skilled facility just simply says you have to have enough staff to meet the needs of the residents. And depending on the acuity of the residents, that could be different from facility to facility. Right. But the assisted living do have set ratios. So you want to know what those are. Um, you want to tour the facility. And as you tour the facility, you obviously want to look at the rooms and the dining room and things like that, but you also want to look really closely at the staff interaction with the with the other residents. Yeah. You, when you walk by, a, when the staff walk by the residents, do they say, hello, how are you, Miss Wilson? Uh, how are you doing? Or do they just walk by and not even look at them? Uh, if there's a call light going off, how long is it taking that staff person to answer that call light? How, if a staff person is needing assistance from another staff, 
are they going to that staff and saying, could you help me? Or are you hearing them scream down the hall, hey, I need help with Miss Wilson, you know? Another thing I look at a lot is if they have an intercom system, how loud is that intercom system? That's something we don't normally think about, but if it's going off a lot and if it's going and if it's loud, it's probably that loud in the evening too. So those are all kinds of things you want to know about. You want to look at the activity schedule. You know, where is it located? Is it so high on the wall that a person in a wheelchair could not see it? Could not it? see it, right. So they don't know what the activities are. And, and maybe the number of activities. And what, the number. What, what should they expect? Should people expect that there are, you know, four or five things going on every day? I mean, do you have any Well, basis I know comparison? most facilities will do an activity at 10 o'clock in the morning and 2 o'clock in the afternoon pretty standardly. Some will have activities in the evening. Now, when you look at the dementia facilities like the garden views and things, they advertise that they have activities going on all day long because they gear them toward dementia residents, so they're they're shorter um, in, in time, and they keep them busy all day. So that is something you do want to look at. What are the activities? And when you look at the activities, what are they? Some facilities will have bingo five days a week. Well, I'm not a bingo fan, so what am I going to do? Not Everybody's a bingo right. fan. So the law says you have to have activities to meet the needs of all the residents. So if all they have is bingo five days a week, then you may have one other activity, maybe two. And is that something that your loved one would be interested in? And Cheryl, I would think if you're touring that facility and you see other family members mm-hmm. there visiting their loved ones, go up and ask them, what do you think about this? Absolutely. Also, try to go during mealtime. Observe a meal. Does it look appealing to you? What does the meal look like? So you're going to want to do all those things. Who is it? They usually have a resident council. Who is the president of the resident council? Do they have a family council? Can I speak with them and ask them questions? And tell me about the resident council. That's a, a Those are people who are residents only? Right. They're only residents, and they meet monthly. And they meet monthly to discuss what's going on in the facility, concerns. Some of them do. And I encourage the family the resident councils to do positive things, too. Some of them will have a committee that sits with the dietary department. Some will have a welcoming committee that welcomes new residents. Some will pick a staff person of the month. Uh, But some facilities, all the resident council do is bring complaints to the facility. So it can be very positive and still build, work to build resolution. And I've known of some places where there's been, as you suggest, tension between this committee and the management. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes the committee may want things that management feels is not in the budget, or they may interpret their duties differently to not mm-hmm. include certain things. You hope it doesn't come to where when people come to a place to spend what they want to be the most serere, uh, serene mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. harmonious, mm-hmm. tranquil period of their life, and it ends up being fraught with this sort of activity. And, and when some, yeah, and when that happens, one of the things with the resident council is the residents can choose to run the council themselves, have a resident council president, vice president, secretary, or they can choose to have like the social worker lead it uh, if nobody wants to do that. I had a resident council when I was an ombudsman who wanted the ombudsman to lead the resident council uh, because they didn't want someone from the facility doing it. Yeah, but. 
The facility really fought back at that, but it is the resident's choice. So whoever leads the council will take notes and then will bring them back to the facility. Now, the facility is required to respond to those. And if the resident wants maybe the administrator in their meeting, the administrator has to be invited by the council to attend the meeting. So they can request anyone they want, want to be in the meeting to discuss the concerns, but they have to be invited. Huh. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that is a a potent uh, resource. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a means to call attention. If not formal authority, it's still authority. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm glad to hear that. And I guess you're getting back to your point. um, If you have this uh, very militant sort of, you know, counsel, it kind of suggests there might be a problem Mm-hmm. Uh, either, either at least among the residents, more likely a problem with the management. So these are things that you're allowed to ask, and you should. Uh, you know, tell us about your council, your residents' mm-hmm. council, mm-hmm. and then you're suggesting go to the person who's the chair of that. Mm-hmm. But Cheryl, what happens when you don't have the luxury of planning ahead? You know, the, you've got a family that's in crisis mode because their loved ones. Some there was an incident. They're in the hospital and. Their next stop is skilled care. And so they don't have time to really do all that research. So they would, I guess, contact you and you would advise them. Well, you know, and and unfortunately, you know, anyone who works on the legal side with long-term care, you know, we would hope that people would get the message that you need to plan ahead. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't. People don't. And it's that crisis. Mom fell. She broke her hip. She needs to go to rehab. Exactly. And the hospital is going to send them to whatever rehab can take them because they're interested in clearing out their beds for other people mm-hmm. coming in. So your mom may wind up at a facility that really can't meet your needs. So, yeah. you know, one of the things you have to know is you're never stuck in a place. Uh, that's just something you have to know. If they cannot meet your needs, you can be moved somewhere else. So let's kind of walk that through a little slower to be sure that that our our uh, viewers understand this process. So an incident's happened. Somebody is transported to a hospital. The hospital provides the sort of acute care, whatever it's necessary. Maybe it's a broken hip. Mm-hmm. And then they will want to move them very quickly, perhaps within a couple of days, mm-hmm. out of there. Mm-hmm. And in that case, the family has literally had very little time to go mm-hmm. look at a place. And hospitals will generally recommend a place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, Normally, the family can choose a place if they if they know a place to go to? Yeah, the family can, you know, when the social worker calls and says, we're working on discharging your mom to rehab, the family could say, well, you know, I know of this rehab by me. You know, I would love for them to go there. And the social worker would then call and see if they have an opening and make that move. So the family can be very involved with that, but it is a very quick process. So they're not going right. to yeah. try for several days to reach a family. They, they have a list of facilities that they like, and they're going to be calling those places to see who has openings. And they arrange for identifying a place, and, mm-hmm. and unless you intervene, right. then your loved one will be transferred to that place. But the good news is, though, that if the family then wants to take a more deliberative process to look around at the things we've been talking about, for example, which includes skilled care as well as assisted living, then they can do that. And then the, their loved one can be transferred. Normally, will that transfer, that, that second transfer take place after the rehabilitation period? Well, the thing is, if the, if the home moves your parent to a rehab, first of all, 
families don't know what they don't know. So they don't know, they trust the hospital is going to know where to put mom or dad. So let's say they move them somewhere and, you know, over time they find out, well, you know, the rehab, this is really better than I thought. So, you know, as the rehab progresses, they're going to have a discharge meeting and say, you know, your mom, we feel they need to be in long-term care. So, you know, we need to make arrangements to move them to long-term care. So they will either say, we have an opening, we can move them onto one of our floors, or, you know, at that point, if there's somewhere else you want them to go, they can look to see if there's openings. But once Medicare decides that the discharge is going to happen, uh, they only have to give 48 hours notice to a family. Yeah, a little bit of the backstory here for our viewers is um, Medicare will pay for the things associated with rehabilitation. So as long as you're engaged in a sort of treatment of an injury or an illness, and that in, that can include rehab, then they'll pay for that. But what they will not pay for is a chronic condition and the sort of long-term care that we associate with, with nursing homes, for example. Right. So that's the reason there's an obligation on the part of the long-term care facility uh, or the rehab facility to be very vigilant. And the moment that the patient gets to that point where they maximize their recovery realistically, if they don't if they don't jump on that and get them out of there at that time, then they may find that Medicare is not going to pay them. Mm-hmm. So Medicare is very vigilant about not letting people ride past this this maximum date of coverage. And, and so for that reason, you might find that a nursing home or rehab center says, look, we've got to make this transition soon. And you said mm-hmm. like in 48 hours notice. Is, and correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't it like only 30 days for rehab they'll pay for Medicare? No, in no, home? no. Medicare will pay up to 100 days. Okay, oh, 100, The first 20 days are generally at 100% and 21 through 100 are usually 80, 20 if it's a traditional plan. But what people don't understand is you're not guaranteed 100 days, okay? Like he said, when you reach that maximum potential for rehab, which is the term they use, the Medicare is going to stop, okay? And then they're going to have to be moved either to private pay or if they qualify for Medicaid, they're going to have to make the move off the Medicare unit. And there are exceptions if the beds on the Medicare are a swing bed, which means they're they're certified for Medicare and Medicaid. You might have some dealings with it, but most of the time they have to move off. So what do you do? You may be told, you know, next Tuesday, mom has to be out of the Medicare unit. So you've got a very limited time. Kind of what we were talking about, if you need to move them to the private pay side of that facility until you can find where you really want them to go, that would be better because they're somewhat familiar with that facility than to just blanketly move them to some place where you don't know if it's a good match and they're in a totally different environment. environment yeah. And, and an, among the things that you want to think about and maybe intervene at the point before your loved one is transferred, that first transfer from, let's say, a traditional hospital floor to a to a rehab facility where that may, in fact, be a, a nursing home as well. And often those are used interchangeably because nursing homes will often function as rehab places, typically. Mm, sure. So, but. If you know that you're going to be relying on Medicaid, you should know that not all long-term care facilities take Medicaid. They don't have Medicaid Mm -hmm. beds. Mm -hmm. So if you end up going to a place like 
to a place that doesn't, and you know that's what you're going to need, maybe you can head that off and at least get into a place that has the possibility of being a place you'll stay as opposed to going to a place where you know that you can't stay because you know the moment you reach this point we've been talking about, there's going to have to be a transfer out of the facility if you're relying on Medicaid. One of my saddest stories that I've heard way too many times is a family wanting to put their loved one in a facility, and down the road, they're going to need Medicaid, okay? But as they come in, they have some assets. So I've had so many families tell me that the facility said, you come here, you spend down all your assets, and when your loved one needs Medicaid, we will have a bed for them. That is a huge red flag. If they're not willing to sign on the line and guarantee you a bed, don't believe that they're going to have a bed when your loved one needs it because they are not going to kick someone else out of a bed to give it to your loved one. So when you're looking for a place, like you said, one thing you want to do is look for a facility that has a larger number of Medicaid beds Mm -hmm. so that the likelihood is that there would be. And then when they are getting within six months of needing a Medicaid bed, That's when you go to the home and say, you know, they've got about six months left of resources and then they're going to need a Medicaid bed and start getting them looking for that Medicaid and they can be transferred to that bed and get in that vendor bed, which is a Medicaid bed. And then when the time comes and they need to make the application, they can. So does that happen a lot where a family is blindsided when they were told initially, oh, you know, we'll have a Medicaid bed ready? Happens. It happens more than you would think. Wow. And, and But generally, it happens in the facilities that don't have a lot of Medicaid beds. So the more beds, and some facilities are 100% Medicaid. So it just depends on how many they have. So yeah. that's a good question to and, ask. How mm-hmm, many Medicaid mm-hmm. beds do and let you me have? Give, let me give a little bit of background here. Um, it's very easy for this to become inside baseball, sort of, because we use these terms a lot. Mm-hmm. So um, Medicaid beds... Are, uh, all that means is that a facility has decided that they want to qualify, they're willing to take a certain number of people for which Medicaid is going to pay them. And, and that the amount that they get paid is based on a calculation, an average of the costs of long-term care facilities in that state. So there's a formula, and that formula, I can tell you, ends up being not real high, but it's guaranteed money. So it is attractive to a, a good facility. It doesn't mean that only you know lower-level facilities would choose to, to take that money. Often, you can have a nice facility that will choose that because it is guaranteed. It's regular money. But again, it's not going to be paid on the upper reaches of the range in that state of the quality or the prices of long-term care. So if you're wanting a luxury facility, for example, if you have the money to where you can pay for that, then uh, that facility may not have Medicaid beds because the rules are that these facilities cannot discriminate. They can't say, oh, we've qualified for three beds in this uh, in this facility of 12, we'll use numbers 20, for example, beds. So three of them are Medicaid. We're going to treat them differently. Mm-hmm. We're going to go down and check on them once a day rather than two or three times. They, that's not legal. So if they have any Medicaid beds, they've got to give the same level of care. They same cannot treatment. discriminate. Mm-hmm. So don't fear Medicaid because of that. But you do need to talk to a facility about the number of beds that they have said that they will be qualified for Medicaid. So that's that's what you were, Cheryl, you were explaining. Right. And, you know, if they only have 20 beds in a 100-bed facility and that's where you want to go, then you need to notify that facility maybe.
maybe nine months out that mom will be needing a Medicaid bed so they can start looking and as attrition happens and beds open up, get her in a bed before that period ends. And one other thing, uh, you raised a good point a while ago when you said that that you start out paying and these facilities will say, oh, don't worry about it. Uh, go ahead and pay us our regular rate. And then whenever you spend all your money, meaning then you, you have to be almost literally broke to qualify for Medicaid. But there are some moves you can make. That's, you know, talk to somebody at Tucker Allen about that. But you can certainly do things to protect some of your assets. But just for the sake of this discussion, we don't want to go down that road. But that is a road you should go down. But anyway, for this discussion, just take it that you got to be broke. And so you may often, often people are not broke when they enter a mm-hmm. long-term care facility. So, so Cheryl, the point you're making is that these facilities want these people to come in. So they say to them, look, no, no, we'll make, we have some Medicaid beds mm-hmm. and we'll make those available for mm-hmm. you later. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean they can just, as soon as your money runs out, declare your bed a Medicaid bed. Mm-hmm. They've only certified for a certain number of beds in that facility and that's it. And as you point out, it could be, you know, 10%, 5%. Right. But the certification follows the bed, not the room. So when someone goes on Medicaid from private pay, they're going to move to another room unless it's duly certified, which is oftentimes not. So that is going to be a move to another room to the bed that is certified. Sure. So, you know, again, it's just, it's all about the planning, you mm-hmm. know, what, yeah. how much money do I have to going in and when do I need to make that notification so my loved one will get that Medicaid bed and it's all doable if you plan ahead. That's a very good point you made because I would not have known that and I, and I suspect most people wouldn't no. that that to, when they say to you that they'll make a bed available to you, you found that historically, Often those beds are not available. Well, how could they even make that promise? They can't. There's no way. When that happens, I'll go back to that facility and say, you know, so-and-so was promised. If they spent down their 100000 you would have a bed ready. Oh, nobody here would have ever said that. Well, actually, this is a person who said, well, they're not here anymore. And so, no, we can't do that. They'll have to move. Or show me where it says that on this piece of paper. Yeah, yeah. That's why I say if you're being told that, the best way to— to nip that in the bud and say, well, I'd like that in writing. And that which will they won't never do. happen they because do. they can't. No. They can't. But but realistically, you say that at least it's it's uh, much more reliable if, you, if you're having this conversation with somebody who has multiple Medicaid beds. Right. Because right. it may come to a point where you're not going to get a guarantee. And so as a result, you know, you're going to want to be sure that, that you – you have this conversation because for you it's kind of unavoidable. You don't qualify for Medicaid immediately, but you know you will because you don't have ten million dollars. You have maybe two hundred thousand or one hundred thousand or less. So you know you're going to spend that down, and at least be sure you're talking to a facility that has multiple beds that qualify. That may be the best you can do because, as you said, you're not likely to get a promise. Right, you will not get a promise. You, if you do, it's a red flag. The other thing is if your loved one needs to be on a memory care unit in a facility, there's even less beds there. But if you're looking for memory care, either in assisted living or skilled, one thing that you can do here in the state of Missouri that a lot of people don't know is ask to see the disclosure statement. And what the disclosure statement is, is 
way back when, when people would go on memory care, that just meant they locked the doors and they couldn't get out. So now if you ask to see their disclosure statement, they have to show you what about that unit makes it special. Do they have additional staffing? Do they have extra activities during that three to nine period when sundowners happen? Do the staff have more training? What makes your unit a memory care or a special care unit? Is there a certification in many states for memory, a separate certification? Not that I know of. But generally, on a memory care, you're going to have a smaller unit, which is really good because a lot of people with uh, memory care issues or dementia do better in a smaller environment with a stricter routine and consistent staff. So oftentimes you're more likely to find that on a memory care unit. Mm -hmm. So having the same people every day who know them and they get to know, having a routine that's very scheduled is something that can really help somebody with dementia thrive where they may not thrive in the general population. So just because they're not exit-seeking does not mean they would not do well on a memory care. Interesting. Boy, time flies. Uh, <laughs> so we've covered a lot of ground. We could cover a lot more, uh, Cheryl. I, I, we'll have to do this again when we can take another uh, 40 minutes or so. Yeah, and, and before we wrap up, Definitely have to get Cheryl's book. And I am the resident. I am the resident. Wow. Becoming and- an advocate for your loved one needs. And what I did was I took all the federal laws that govern long-term care uh, on the federal side, and I put them in terms families could understand. And then I added 64 examples where I used the federal law to get the client what they were requesting. So one thing I try to teach families is, you know, sometimes when you're not getting something, it's because of a facility policy but a facility policy can never violate a resident's federal right. So the more you know about what your loved one's rights are, the better care they're going to get. Very good. Uh, So uh, wrapping up, we'll make uh, this book available on our website. So be sure and check there and you can, you can order it or however, whatever means we have to access it. And, uh, We will continue to have guests like Cheryl Wilson, people who are authorities on things that are relevant to your life. So we love to do this, but we ask you, uh, please hit the like button, and we hope you subscribe so we can get these shows automatically. Till next time, this has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Thank you. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week, we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.